This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Sundown towns are a part of America's past, but in many places, the impact can still be felt today. On today's show, we begin our series, After the Sun Goes Down, with a look at how Chinese immigrants were treated in some of Colorado's mining towns. And we explore allegations from a whistleblower complaint out of the state's Air Pollution Control Division. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Sundown towns once drove out people of color or prohibited them from living within city limits. This practice started in the late 19th century, but the impact continues today. In a new series starting today, After the Sun Goes Down, we're going to look at some of these towns in the Mountain West. We start in Colorado, where Chinese immigrants flocked to the state to find gold in the mid-1800s. As KUNC's Stephanie Daniel reports, they were tolerated in some mining camps and run out of others. Linda Jew is sitting at a table in the Douglas County Library near Denver. She's looking at an old black-and-white family photo. The lady on the top is my mother, Wawa. The formal portrait features nine people. The three young boys wear suits, while the four girls pose in dresses. Their parents sit in the middle. That's Willie Chin holding one of the twins. Missing from the photo is Willie Chin's father and Ju's great-grandfather, Chin Lin Su. In 1856, Chin immigrated from China to San Francisco as a young man. He was over six feet tall, had blue eyes, and eventually worked on the Transcontinental Railroad. Because he spoke English so well, they asked him to help organize the Chinese to build the railroads from California to Utah. Thousands of Chinese immigrants laid tracks for the railroads. And when that work ended, they needed other jobs. Former Colorado State historian William Way says many joined American and white European prospectors who came west to find gold, silver, and other riches. There were a lot of Chinese railroad workers who moved on to become miners. Chin was one of them and his mastery of English opened a lot of doors. He supervised other Chinese workers at one of Colorado's mining camps and became very wealthy. While Chin's accomplishments set him apart, the racism he faced did not. As the number of immigrants increased, so did anti-Chinese sentiment. The problem that the Chinese experienced was they were competitive in, if you will, the uh, labor market. Wei says the Chinese were tolerated because there was a chronic labor shortage. But when they started taking jobs that white people thought belonged to them, economic and cultural tensions heightened. There were some places that they were able to establish themselves but were subsequently driven out of them and other places where they were not welcomed at all. The 1870 census shows Chinese people were living in Nevada and the territories of Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. Bigotry rippled through the Mountain West. One example was in Leadville, Colorado, a city about two hours west of Denver. Some of the things that were being said to keep them out were really just totally racist about their clannish, they're dirty, they drown their children. Just ridiculous things like that. Stephen Whittington runs the National Mining Hall of Fame and Museum there. In the 1880s, Leadville's population exploded thanks to the silver boom, and it became the state's second largest city. But not everyone could find their fortune here. There were 16 Chinese men living in Leadville who had been hired to dig a ditch. He says they had just started working when a group of men from a neighboring town showed up and threatened them. The men packed up and basically took off. A year later, residents blew up a Chinese man's cabin while he slept. He survived, but quickly left town. There was an unwritten rule, says Winnington, that, quote, John Chinaman was not allowed to enter the city limits, and no other Chinese ventured there for decades. 
Today, Lake County's population is less than 1% Asian. I am unfortunately not really surprised that people did not like him. That's 21-year-old Grace Parker. She grew up in Leadville and is working at the mining museum for the summer. If you're not Caucasian or white, you're usually attacked, which is really sad to hear about because I'm not part of that majority. Parker is Chinese and was adopted by a white family as a baby. She never learned about this part of Leadville's history as a kid, but says she's always felt comfortable living here. Growing up, I never really had a problem with like anything racial or anybody that kind of not like me because of my race. But Parker was born more than a century after the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. It was the first measure to broadly restrict immigration in America. It wasn't repealed until 1943. America wouldn't have been built if it wasn't for the, the Chinese, because the railroads opened up the country. Back at the library, Linda Ju is reminiscing about her great-grandfather Chin Lin Su. He eventually moved his family to Denver's Chinatown, which was destroyed by a violent mob in 1880. Chin stayed in the city, though, and his descendants still live in the area today. I always tell people that I'm the fourth generation of a Colorado pioneer. Even though Chin was highly respected, he wasn't immune to racism. In 1977, he was honored with a stained glass portrait at the state capitol. He's wearing a red mandarin collar, but Ju says this is a misrepresentation. Chin never dressed like that. He always wore a Western suit. I'm Stephanie Daniel. As we just heard, some of Colorado's mining towns provide the earliest examples of sundown towns. White people in some of these places forcibly expelled Chinese miners who they feared would take their jobs. We want to go even deeper now with the story of one Chinese man who defied that history and became a Colorado pioneer. Linda Ju. William Chin. He and I are first cousins. My mother was Wawa Ju. She was the daughter of Willie Chin and the granddaughter of Chin Lin Su. Chin Lin Su came from China in about 1850. And as a young man, he spoke perfect English, wore Western suits. And because he spoke English so well, they asked him to help organize the Chinese to, to build the railroads from California to Utah. The Sierra Nevada mountains were a real challenge for him because of the terrain and building the railroad up there. And so there was a lot of blasting that needed to be done and a lot of hard physical labor that they had to do to complete that section of the railroad. They had to fight through cholera and all kinds of pneumonia digging through 17 feet of snow. And so eventually they got it finished and built the railroad to uh, Utah. And they had this famous picture of the Golden Spike where they were all the businessmen and lawyers that put the money into it, but no Chinese in the picture at all that built the railroad. Chinese immigrants started coming in uh, in the 1870s. A lot of them had been railroad workers, uh, and after the Transcontinental Railroad was complete, uh, they needed something else to do. David Forsyth and I'm the executive director of the Gilpin Historical Society. Without mining, Central City and Gilpin County, and really Colorado would not exist. They had everybody here, the Chinese, the Irish, the Italians, the Cornish. There was a big Czech population here. We had lots of, of different groups up here. Chin Lin Su came to uh, 
Colorado and was looking for gold, tried to, to mine gold or silver in, in the mines in, in Colorado up near Blackhawk, Central City. He couldn't do the mining, find his own mine, so he had to go through the mines that other people had already dug. And of course he didn't find anything, so um, his reputation had preceded him and the companies in Central City had these big placer mines and they needed help to uh, work the placer mines. So they found him because he spoke English and asked him to organize the Chinese to build the placer mines or work the placer mines. So mining was going pretty strong in Colorado at that point. And so a few of them started coming in. It was never a huge population in Gilpin County. I think about 100, 125 at most uh, that were ever here. They had a fairly elaborate community. They relied very much on each other, but they also were very involved with the larger community as a whole. A lot of them went into the laundry business because miners needed laundry done, and, and so it was an obvious way for them to make money, and a lot of them made a lot of money um, doing that. They were sort of in Central City, focused in what was called the Dostal Alley area. The big leader of the community in Central City was Chin Lin Su, um, who became extremely wealthy from mining, laundry, and property investments. And he was very highly respected by pretty much everyone in Central City. Uh, and he was a figure that really stood out because he was over six feet tall. He had blue eyes. Um, so he really stood out wherever he was uh, because there were not a lot of six feet tall people, period, uh, in the 1870s, 1880s. And so he was really looked at as the leader of the Chinese community and sort of the go-between between the Chinese and everyone else. He got a good reputation as being a honest, good man that they asked him to be the sheriff of Central City. And it was still a territory then in, in Colorado. But he said, no, he has enough trouble being Chinese, let alone being the sheriff of, of this territory. <laughs> So there was never that I am aware of a, a push to try to expel the Chinese or exclude them from coming here. They kind of just let them do their thing. I mean, you had incidents. There are newspaper stories about a group of boys, you know, harassing some Chinese miners, throwing rocks at a, a Chinese guy's house. Um, and there are, you know, the little snide remarks in the newspapers and stuff. There's one newspaper article from the 1870s. I forget the exact date, uh, but the, the headline is the heathen Chinese. The biggest problem was after the 1874 fire. That fire destroyed most of Main Street, big part of the business district. And it was originally blamed on a Chinese religious rite that had just gotten out of hand because it did start in the Dostal Alley section. No one was killed. No one was seriously hurt. Insurance covered a lot of the, the rebuilding costs, but people were mad. And so there was actually a mob that kind of formed, and they were going to just go tear apart the Chinese section, what was left of it at that point after the fire. And uh, Chin Lin Su stepped in and got them calmed down, and some other people in town got them calmed down. The thinking now is that it was actually just a chimney fire. That, that got out of control and everything down there was wood so it's just going to spread like crazy that was the biggest problem um, that ever really happened up here for the most part 
they lived quietly and everybody just left them alone. The gold mining, the placer mining stopped and there was no work. And that's when a lot of the Chinese left and they, they started having riots there because they, the people that lived there didn't want the Chinese there anymore. Chin Lin Su came uh, down to Denver to try to find work. America wouldn't have been built if it wasn't for the, the Chinese, because the railroads opened up the country. I think we're pretty proud of our lineage, you know, because of, you know, what they had to go through. You know, we have no idea, really, in our lives, what they had to go through. I always tell people that I'm the uh, fourth generation of a Colorado pioneer. In our next story, we'll visit a northern Idaho city with a brief sundown town past. Today, it's often viewed as a progressive place, but some people of color there say they still feel unwelcome. When I said, hey, I'm going to grad school in Idaho, everybody's like, are you sure? <laughs> like, what part of Idaho? I'm like, Moscow, are you sure? Our series, After the Sun Goes Down, was produced in conjunction with the Mountain West News Bureau. You can find and share all of the stories and see photos and a video exploring the broader impacts of sundown towns at KUNC.org sundown. And you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. In March of this year, three employees of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment came forward to allege a long-term pattern of wrongdoing from environmental officials who are tasked with regulating air pollution in the state. In a formal whistleblower complaint filed with the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, the employees said high-level leaders in the Air Pollution Control Division instructed them and their colleagues to ignore federal evaluation standards for some of the state's major polluters, like oil and gas companies. In response, both the EPA and Colorado State Attorney General Phil Weiser launched investigations into the APCD. After the complaint was filed, Colorado Newsline reporter Chase Woodruff began investigating the whistleblower allegations and the inner workings of the division. Last week, Chase released Smokescreen, a four-part series on his findings. He spoke with Colorado Edition's Henry Zimmerman about what he found. Let's start with just a brief overview of the Air Pollution Control Division. Tell us who they are and what they do. Yeah, so the, the Air Division is a, it's a branch of the State Health Department um, and their job, they have a, a long to-do list uh, these days. They are um, both, you know, under the Federal Clean, Clean Air Act, they have a bunch of responsibilities to regulate Colorado's air quality, and that means um, granting permits to polluters, performing inspections, uh, doing penalties and enforcement and that kind of thing. They are also increasingly tasked with a lot of uh, the state's climate efforts and, and efforts to reduce greenhouse gases. And um, yeah, the, uh, you know, as, as the whistleblower complaint this year has, has revealed there, there is a, uh, a pretty long history of, of, you know, internal complaints and dissent within the division uh, about the you know, extent to which it is uh, doing its job and, and what current and former employees, including this, these whistleblowers, allege is kind of a pattern of, of political interference. 
Well, let's dive into that. Um, this whistleblower complaint, can you tell us who filed it and what exactly was in the complaint? Sure. So this most recent whistleblower complaint that was filed this year and has received the most attention is what was filed by um, employees of the Air Division's modeling unit. And these are folks whose job is to um, use data and statistics and, and computer modeling to kind of uh, add up and, and calculate emissions from lots of different pollution sources in Colorado and sort of calculate what the air quality impacts of, of that those pollution sources will be. And what they what what what's shown in the, the some of the public documents that have been released as part of this complaint is that those modelers were instructed by division leadership not to apply certain federal standards to that work. Um, the federal government sets a bunch of different standards and there are short-term standards that you know about how long how, how, how much you can emit in say an hour there are longer term standards looking at how much you can emit in in a full day uh, and several of those standards were basically um, you know these these employees these modeling employees were instructed not to apply those standards to when evaluating pollution sources in terms for, for permits and things like that. And what the whistleblowers allege is that this was basically done because if those standards had been applied, you know, these some of these pollution sources would have violated these standards and would have been subject to, um, you know, tougher enforcement, more more controls, and uh, you know, some of them may not have granted been granted permits. And you know, they say that over time, this has added up to to real air quality impacts and impacts to the health of, of folks along the Front Range. So these findings have some pretty serious implications for Colorado's air quality and the environment. Can you talk a little bit more about implications in general here? Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're obviously, um, we're this past summer that has just finished is, was um, pretty much any way you look at it, the, the worst summer for Colorado uh, in the Front Range's air quality in over a decade. It was real, really um, a backslide in terms of uh, a lot of the pollution, you know, types of pollution, including ozone pollution, which is, you know, the, the type of pollution that Colorado has, has struggled with for, for decades. And, um, you know, as, as these whistleblowers lay out in this complaint, they, they, uh, and, in, in my reporting, obviously, this whistleblower complaint uh, was released earlier this year, and um, there have been some indications of this here and there before. But what I really found in reporting this story was uh, just how far back and how widespread some of these concerns, both you know outside and within the division, the air division itself, um, employees there, how, how much concern there has been really over the last decade about how the division is um, regulating these these sources of pollution. And a lot of the folks I talked to said that, you know, the, these choices that were made uh, at, at a high level within the air division over the last decade have really, you know, added up and have resulted to a certain extent in, in a lot of the air quality impacts we've seen this summer. And, and another thing that I discuss in, in the series is that, you know, folks see the impacts of wildfire smoke, and that's what gets discussed a lot. Um, and it's true that wildfire smoke does, you know, it, it poses, it's a type of pollution in and of itself. It, it poses health risks and can worsen ozone pollution. Um, but for the most part, you know, uh, 
especially when it comes to ozone pollution, uh, wildfire smoke kind of plays a, a, a more minor role and, and most of that pollution is coming from, uh, you know, sources like uh, cars and trucks and industrial sources like oil and gas and some of it drifts in from out of state. So, um, you know, the wildfire smoke is a factor, but it is certainly far from from the largest factor. Well, uh, you have been working on this for many months um, and throughout the process have tried to be in contact with folks at the Air Division and with the State Health Department. Um, let's kind of shift to talk about their role in all these things. How have they responded uh, to the whistleblower complaints and I guess some of these other items? Yeah, so, um, you know, I've covered a lot of uh, state and local government agencies at, at various levels and, uh, you know, the, the Air Division is is, is far and away, unfortunately, the, the least open and accessible and, and transparent agency I've dealt with. I mean, I uh, they very rarely grant interviews. I've covered a lot of these issues for several years now, and I've consistently had interview requests to interview top folks at the Air Division and CDPHE. Um, those have been denied. They tend to want to, you know, only give written responses. And a lot of the times those written responses are, are very heavily edited and, and go through a, a, a several rounds of approvals and uh, it can just kind of end up as, as non-answers in a lot of cases. So, um, yeah, part of this part of the story was, um, you know, kind of uh, frankly, pretty frustrating in, in trying to uh, talk to folks there. And that was um ended up being kind of an element in this story and not not only from from a you know the perspective of those of us in the media but i heard from from folks in in various parts of of the air division and, and cdphe uh really about how you know the sort of lack of transparency is is part of the culture there and and um things you know there there are policies not just from a media perspective but through for in terms of what is public record like in, inspection reports uh one of the things i was told that was uh inspection reports for pollution sources that are performed by the air division um there was a policy policy shift a few years ago that basically um those inspection reports are now deemed confidential if an enforcement action is initiated and a, a source is found to be out of compliance. So, we'll, you know, one of uh, I talked to a, a former inspector uh, in the air division and what he said was, you know, because of this policy now, if a, you know, a, a pollution source is found to be violating regulations and that inspection report is, is deemed confidential, there's, you know, the, the public can't see that document until the enforcement action is resolved which, uh, you know, obviously um, he, he raised as, as a real transparency concern. To wrap up here, can you kind of walk us through what you're going to continue to watch in the coming weeks and months as this story kind of continues to develop? Yeah, so uh, a couple things, uh, you know, in, in general, um, Colorado, as, as we were talking about here, has really struggled to uh, with, with ozone pollution for, for a really long time. And they've been actually out of compliance with federal health standards for ozone uh, for decades now. And um, as you uh, continue to be out of compliance with those federal standards under the Clean Air Act, you kind of go through a, a, an escalating process of, you know, there, Colorado currently is considered a serious violator of those standards. They are 
probably within the next year going to be downgraded to a severe violator. And that brings with it, you know, a host of new requirements in terms of, uh, you know, regulations and, and things that the state needs to do. And, you know, watching that process uh, over the next year is going to be a really important thing at the air division. And then just in terms of, you know, everyday impacts that folks see out there in the air, uh, heading into next summer, which is, you know, peak ozone season is, you know, Cal the, the Colorado is trending in the wrong direction. I mean, the summer was the worst air quality summer in a decade. It was worse than the year before, which was worse than the year before. And, you know, it, that, are we going to continue that trend and what could be done to kind of reverse that trend? And lots of folks are, are talking about that right now in terms of, you know, within the next six to nine months before we get to summer 2022, we really start to get into, you know, peak ozone and wildfire season, what can be done to, to reverse that trend. Chase Woodruff is a reporter for Colorado Newsline. You can find a link to Smokescreen, his four-part investigative series on the Colorado Air Pollution Control Division at KUNC.org. Chase, thanks for your reporting on this. Thanks very much. Last week, a report from the Independent Investigation commissioned by the State Attorney General was released. The report found some air quality modeling contained errors and that some policies were inadequate or unclear. But it also found the whistleblower claims of falsifying data and suppressing information were not substantiated. The investigation by the EPA is still ongoing. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll get a glimpse into how restaurants are contending with a shortage of workers as they prepare for more indoor dining this fall and winter. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.